doing well getting ready for a great weekend i continue my series on giving thanks but i want to tell you that i'm very thankful for new works plumbing of sacramento they're awesome they've been with me from day one and if you have any plumbing needs concerns you need repairs they're there for you that's right new works plumbing they've got a fix for you just go to their website newworksplumbing.com that's n-e-w wrxplumbing.com new works plumbing they're available around the clock you have an emergency in the middle of the night no problem they'll be there with their 24 7 service for all of your plumbing needs and repairs just go to newworksplumbing.com n-e-w-w-r-x-plumbing.com one of the great things uh, about the profession that i chose and was so fortunate and lucky enough to get into and move up the ladder are all the great people that you meet, uh, some who you idolized growing up, others that you don't know much about, and then you meet them and you find out what a great individual they are. It does work the other way. Sometimes you're around a big time star that you may have looked up to or you've rooted for, and after being around them, you realize that they are a fraud or they're just a bad person. That happens, although that is very much in the minority. Uh, The vast majority of people that I have met along the way uh, have been great and have been helpful in my career and helpful just in life in general support whatever the case may be and I've talked a lot about Marv Albert and I would think and not that I think I've talked about it with so many I've interviewed so many people on my podcast that have been influenced by listening to Marv Albert growing up and if you grew up in the tri-state area New York Connecticut New Jersey uh, you, you were a sports fan, you listen to Marv Albert, all right? That's just the way it was. And you watched him do the nightly news sports on WNBC TV, Channel 4, uh, New York, all right? You, you just did. It was part of the deal. Uh, you, I personally loved it. They were off sync by about two minutes. So I could watch Warner Wolf on CBS, Channel 2 in New York, and then flip over and watch Marv. On the 11 o'clock news, Marv would do the Rangers and the Knicks, and then uh, he'd you know go to the Rock and go into WNBC Channel 4 and do the sports on the news at night. Love that. You know, I, I think most people that I know, Mike Breen, Ian Eagle, you know, Bob Papa, the voice of the Giants and of the Champions Tour for the Golf Channel, uh, you know, Chris Carino, who I've interviewed, the radio voice of the Brooklyn Nets. I can go on and on. The influence that Marv had on all of these individuals is tremendous and for me I mean I've talked about it enough I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Marv but I knew I had made it when I did my first game at Madison Square Garden in 1988 and I'm sitting courtside and literally five six seven feet to my left there's Marv announcing the same game that I'm announcing alongside John Andres the late John Andres and That was the biggest thrill of my life where I had to pinch myself that I was not only announcing a New York sporting event at Madison Square Garden, but it was the Knicks, uh, a team that growing up we all idolized with Walt Frazier and Willis Reed and Dave DeBusher and Bill Bradley, and I can go on and on. I mean, I couldn't even get in. You know, to this day, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on my podcast, the only sporting event that I never recall being at with my father 
was at a Knicks game. I don't believe that my father ever took me or my brother to a Knicks game. And the reason is you could never get tickets. And, you know, my dad didn't make a lot of money. And the money that he did make, uh, he spent on my sister and really on going to games. You know, and again, it didn't cost a lot of money back then to go to the have season tickets for the Giants and the Jets, relatively speaking. But to go to the Knicks games... You just couldn't find tickets. They were they were hard to come by. They were like gold bars. So I never recall being at Madison Square Garden for a Knicks game with my father or brother. I don't think we ever did that. I mean, we, if we did, I certainly don't remember it. But, you know, Marv had a tremendous impact on my life. But that night in 1988, when I had my dad, you know, on the court before the game and had my dad in the media room and seeing all the New York sports figures that I had grown up watching uh, was really as big of a thrill as I've had in this business. To share that with my father and my brother and my uh, aunt, my uh, dad's sister, Lucille, that was uh, a phenomenal time that night in New York. I interviewed Marv for a halftime segment before the game, and I'll never forget that night. But there were so many others that you meet along the way and I would say this and I think most public figures would say this as well when you are just getting into the business you're more enamored when you meet a quote-unquote celebrity okay whether it's an athlete whether it's a musician you know whatever the case may be all right for instance you know again I'm going to jump ahead some 30 years the last time I saw Bill Walton was at Madison Square Garden outside the King's locker room. And he and I did a number of games together over a couple of years, maybe 50 games. And I love Bill, and Bill and I have always, you know, been very friendly, and uh, I have a lot of respect for Bill. And when I was doing the games with Bill Walton, I was kind of like a wow. I could not believe I was doing games with Bill just because he was such an iconic, different figure. But we were standing outside, or he was standing outside of the locker room before the game talking to Luke and uh, Bill saw me and he goes Grant Napier and he sticks his hand out Bill Walton I'm like Bill really how are you sir you know and he was uh, he goes Bill he goes Grant I want you to meet uh, this is uh, so and so from the Grateful Dead you know Bill is a deadhead and and you know I said hey nice to meet you I know for a lot of people, like my umpire friend, Brian Knight, who loves the dead and many other deadheads, like they probably would have jumped, you know, 15 feet in the air to meet a member of the dead. I didn't even know who it was. It didn't mean anything to me. So it didn't really have any relevance to me. So, you know, not not everyone that I meet famous kind of knocks me over, so to speak. But when you're young and you get into this business, you are pretty much blown away uh, for a couple of years. And then you realize that it doesn't matter whether you're famous or not. You know, people are people and they all have problems. They all have issues they're dealing with at home. You know, they might have a, a child that's not doing well in school. They may be going through a divorce, uh, whatever the case may be. All right. Like at the end of the day, you know, we're all people. And then I, I don't put athletes, celebrities, famous people on pedestals. I, I just don't. You know, there, there are maybe a few exceptions. I've talked about Al Davis. You know, that that was a living legend. Being around Al was pretty amazing. And the other one was being around Bill Russell. Like when I got the job in Sacramento before I became the TV voice, you know, meeting Bill Russell and Willis Reed 
was, you know, unbelievable for me. Like, I could not believe it that I was working, you know, in a city where Bill Russell was the head coach and Willis Reed, who I idolized growing up, idolized growing up, was the assistant coach. Everyone loved Willis. Willis was a New York icon and still to this day is a legendary figure on the New York sports landscape. I mean, Willis is on the Mount Rushmore of New York sports heroes. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And Willis really could not have been nicer. He is the real deal. Uh, I can't say a bad word about Willis Reed. He is just a great, great person. One of the funniest things that I ever remember when I was announcing a game, when I did indeed uh, start doing the games, and we weren't even doing the game one night, but I was sitting you know, at press row right on the court, and uh, Willis, during a free throw, asked uh, Harold Presley to come over. And as it turned out, the Kings were playing the Dallas Mavericks, and they had one of the great scorers during that era of Mark Aguirre. And Willis was trying to tell Harold some advice on how to guard Mark Aguirre. Well, when Willis called Harold over, Mark Aguirre walked over with Harold because he had to guard him as the ball was going to be inbounded after the free throws. So Willis is trying to talk to Harold without Mark Aguirre hearing him and then realized that it was going to be a futile attempt. And so Willis goes, Mark, would you tell him what he's doing wrong? And I just cracked up at that. We all cracked up on the scores table. Uh, Willis was a, and again, I haven't seen Willis in years. Uh, great, great man. Being around a legendary Bill Russell, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like, wow, that's Bill Russell. Like, you know, you're talking about one of the great, great sports figures in the history of sports in our country. And then I had a chance to meet Phil Sims. And Phil was a, a guy that, again, as a New York sports fan, idolized. I love Phil Sims. Loved everything about him. Loved Phil when he was going through the rough times when he was drafted out of Moorhead State. And Phil was one of the toughest guys I've ever seen. He was playing behind a putrid offensive line. Uh, he was getting killed, and he would always get back up. You know, he did have some injuries, but uh, he used to get booed off the field. And then to see him persevere, lead the Giants to their first Super Bowl, where he was great, not good, great, of 22 of 25 as the Giants beat Denver on January 25th, 1987. Phil was the MVP of that game, beating John Elway uh, and the Denver Broncos. And make no mistake about it, Phil was the most valuable player in that game. But later in life, getting to meet Phil and then having Phil on my radio show in Sacramento, Phil was always very kind when I needed him or wanted him uh, to come on with me when I hosted the uh, Jim Rome show. Great guy. Love Phil. Great guy. And I'll tell you, it would have broken my heart. I would have been so disappointed if Willis Reed and Phil Sims had turned out to be jerks. Uh, That could not be further from the truth. Great, great guys. And uh, another guy that I had a chance to get to know very well during the late 90s. I wouldn't put him in the same category as Willis Reed, although some would, and that's Dennis Eckersley. When I was working at ESPN Radio in 1998, uh, we were, well, when I say we, me and the other radio host uh, at ESPN Radio, whether it was Tony Bruno, Chuck Wilson, you know, whomever it was, you know, Joe D'Ambrosio, Bob Valvano, John Clayton, right? We would, we would rotate. We wouldn't work with the same people 
uh, all the time. But uh, on Sunday during the World Series, ESPN was carrying the World Series. And so we would go on after the World Series. And I was working with Dennis Eckersley. And so Eck and I would watch the uh, World Series games together in a conference room, hanging out and just talking. And Eck was great. Funny, uh, personable, like wanted to know about you, where you were from. And so that was my life in October at ESPN Radio for, I think, a couple of Sundays, hanging out with Dennis Eckersley. Great guy. Then when I got the job in Sacramento, I talked about being around Russ and Willis. I was so grateful. I'm so thankful that I had a chance to be in the presence of Jack Youngblood. I would say that I would have to put Jack in my top five of nicest people I've ever met in my life. It would be hard for me to just pick out five, but it would. I don't think I could make a list without Jack Youngblood on that list. When I started doing the radio show in Sacramento, Jack was a co-host with me and Tim Roy, and Jack used to work in a different room than Tim and I. There weren't enough room for three people. And so Jack used to be down at the end of the hall, and Jack was just a a saint. And to this day, I just have so much respect for Jack Youngblood. And I said this to Blood on the air one day because I've always believed this. I think the worst thing that ever happened to Jack Youngblood was that he played in the Super Bowl with a broken leg. And the reason why I say that is that's all people think about when they hear the name Jack Youngblood. You know, he was seven-time Pro Bowl, two-time Defensive Player of the Year. You know, he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And yet, when you hear and you mention the name Jack Youngblood, people want to talk about, gee, that's the guy that played with a broken leg in the Super Bowl. And I always felt, I I said to Blood, I go, Blood, I I feel bad for you that that's what people remember you for because you were, you know, a great player. And, you know, he said, I've never really thought of it that way. But I'll, I'll tell you this, okay? Uh, if you meet Jack Youngblood and you don't like Jack Youngblood, then something's wrong with you. Same thing with Wayman Tisdale, and may he rest in peace. Tizzy's one of the great people that I've ever met. And I told the story working in Decatur, Illinois, and covering the Oklahoma-Illinois basketball game when both were high-ranked teams. They may have both been in the top five when they played, but Tizzy was the, you know, Mr. College Basketball you know, multiple All-American. Every year he was at Oklahoma, he was an All-American. Wayman Tisdale was a household name when he played college basketball. Everybody knew who Wayman Tisdale was. And I used to, you know, make extra money by doing stories for a network uh, in the uh, Midwest called Sports Time. And so you don't know, you'd never know if Sports Time was going to use your stuff or not. But I went to uh, Champaign, Illinois with the video camera, and I'm sitting courtside on the baseline, you know, getting all the shots that I need. I'm ISOing on Tizzy, and, you know, I'm doing everything I need to make a feature. And I, I, I've told this story before, and I'm sure most of you have heard it, but I'm going to say it again for those that are new. Uh, Illinois beat Oklahoma, all right? And I'm like, oh, boy, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get Tizzy for an interview. And I was standing outside the Oklahoma locker room, and the sports information director came out and asked me what I wanted. And I said, I really would like to get, you know, a, a minute with Tizzy or with Wayman. And he said, yeah, I don't know. We just lost. I don't, I don't know if he'll come out. He goes, hang on. And a minute later, he walks out with Wayman. I said, Wayman, thank you very much. I won't spend much of your time. My name is Grant Napier. And I asked him, like, three questions. And he was so soft-spoken, shy, introverted, 
and I had to put the mic right up underneath his. That's how it was with Tizzy. I had to put the mic like, you know, right next to his mouth. And I thanked him. He shook my hand and he went into the locker room. And the next time I saw Wayman Tisdale was when he was traded to the Sacramento Kings. And I introduced myself. I said, you're probably not going to remember this. And he said, oh, I do remember. I do remember. I remember the game. I remember we lost. And he goes, I actually do remember talking to you outside of the locker room. And Wayman was um, as good as it gets. His family, his wife, Regina. I mean, again, Wayman Tisdale, if you met Wayman Tisdale and you didn't like or love Tizzy, then you are a bad person, plain and simple. Because Wayman Tisdale was the salt of the earth. And I'll never forget, I've told this story, when he came in with uh, Dave Cos and friends playing his bass guitar, and I got seats five rows from the stage, and Tizzy didn't see me, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's jamming, and I stand up, and he looks at me with that big smile. Tizzy had the best smile in the world. And in the middle of the song, he goes, Grant Napier, in the middle of the freaking song. And then um, during the intermission, I went to his green room and was able to talk to him. You know, he he was battling, you know, his cancer at that point, although uh, he thought that, you know, he was going to be fine. And that's the last time I ever saw Wayman. And I'm so grateful to this day that I had those 10 minutes with Wayman in his green room, reminiscing, talking, give him a hug, and then watch the second part of that tremendous concert outdoors at the Radisson. Last time I saw Wayman Tisdale, and again, you just won't meet many people better than Wayman. You also meet some real jerks in this business, and I don't know if I've ever met a bigger malcontent than Barry Bonds. You know, I used to cover the Giants every year and the A's in spring training. And being around Barry Bonds was just, it was a bad experience. And to be honest with you, I never once asked Barry Bonds for an interview. And the reason why I never asked him for an interview is I don't want to be disrespected because he would have disrespected me. And and it's not worth it. But I saw Bonds disrespect so many people at spring training. He was just an idiot. I mean, he did not treat people with respect. And, you know, I'm fine if you don't want to talk to somebody. All right? I get it. You know, if you're a high-profile athlete and you're doing interviews all the time, I'm fine if you don't want to talk. But don't be a jerk about it. There's no reason to be disrespectful. You can just say, no, thank you. I'm not going to talk today. That's all you got to do. You know, you don't have to, you know, rant up and down and, you know, make the reporter feel like an idiot. And that's what Barry Bonds did on a regular basis. And I also believe... That's one of the reasons why he's still, to this day, not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yes, I understand about the steroid era. I understand that, you know, no Clemens, McGuire. I get all of that, okay? But I also think there are a lot of people that hold that against Barry Bonds because the Baseball Writers of America had to deal with him in his career, and I would think most of them would say he was the biggest pain in the ass they've ever covered. So there, there are exceptions, all right, to those that you meet and you just go, boy, what an idiot. Another one was Reggie Jackson. And I always share this story. I was covering the Yankees and Indians. It's the first time I had been to the stadium in Cleveland with a press pass. And I talked about meeting Mel Allen, you know, in the Yankee dugout 
two and a half, three hours before the game. And I was sitting in the Yankee dugout. And I couldn't believe I was sitting in the New York Yankees dugout. And, you know, nobody was on the field. And Mel Allen actually came out and we started talking and he could not have been nicer. Uh, but then uh, one or two Yankees came out onto the field and I walked behind the batting cage. And because I, I was going to be there so I could watch batting practice with the Yankees. And all of a sudden, Reggie Jackson walks to the back of the batting cage. Now, I'm about mm, five feet away. All right. I looked at him. I didn't say nothing. I didn't say anything because, you know, I was just didn't I did not want to interfere with anything. I wasn't there. You know, I was my first time at a professional sporting event with a press pass. You know what I mean? So I was just kind of incognito. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and I'm just going to observe. And again, there's nobody at the stadium. You could hear a pin drop. All right. The place is empty. We're talking about an 85,000 seat stadium, which right now doesn't have anyone in it other than some workers. And there were two Yankees, you know, out and batting practice had not even begun yet. Okay. And this guy comes up with his Cleveland Indians jacket and his son. His son could not have been more than eight, nine, ten years old max. Okay, max. And Reggie is standing there, and Reggie's not doing anything. Nothing. He's got his arms on the back of the batting cage, and he's not doing anything. And there's nobody around. There's no activity going. And this gentleman worked for the Cleveland Indians grounds crew. All right? And he walks up with his Indians jacket on, and he says, Reggie, and Reggie turns, and he goes, hey, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, would you be okay in signing my son's baseball? And Reggie goes off on this guy. What the F are you doing on the field? F this, blah, 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 blah. Made a scene. Ended up signing the little boy's baseball. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. I was just like, you know, you are an absolute jerk. I don't care about all the home runs you hit. I don't care about all your accolades. You know what? There is no reason to treat this man that way in front of his son. That's one of the worst things that I've seen covering sports there were there were others trust me with other people but from that point forward I had zero respect for Reggie Jackson I don't care if you're having a bad day I don't care if you just got in an argument with your wife I don't care what the situation is there is no reason to be that disrespectful in that situation you know Will Clark I love the guy had him on my podcast one of my favorites even though I wasn't a Giants fan Will was very respectful when he was at spring training because he was a guy that a lot of people wanted to speak to. And Will would be very, you know, people would go up and ask him, not now, not now, but when I'm done, I got to go to work. I got to go to work. Okay, thank you, Will. No problem. You know, he was respectful even though he said no. And then when his work was done, he would always have time for the media. But if you went to Will when he was getting ready to go to work, he would go, nope, not now, going to work. Catch me later. But he wasn't a jerk about it. Reggie Jackson was an absolute jerk, and there's no reason to be a jerk. You know, meeting some of the all-time greats at their positions. I used to cover the St. Louis Cardinals in the mid-'80s, Whitey Ball. And always, every time I was out at Bush Stadium, we'd get an interview with Ozzie Smith. That's right, Ozzie Smith, one of the great shortstops in the history of baseball. Ozzie could not have been nicer. And I met Ozzie since at some golf events. Just, you know, A-plus across the board. 
You know, working in Champaign, Illinois in the mid-80s, I was so thankful to be in the presence of Lou Henson and Mike White. Mike was the football coach, went on and was a coach with the Raiders. You know, both great guys. And both had, you know, powerhouse teams. You know, Illinois football, Jack Trudeau was the quarterback then. They were really good. Lou had, you know, every year a top 10 team. And I'll tell you how nice Lou was. I drove 45 minutes from Decatur to Champaign to do an interview. And my cameraman forgot to white balance. So Lou looked all purple and I couldn't use it. And it was a big week. So I called the sports information director at Illinois and I said, listen, I, I, this is really embarrassing, but I can't use the video. Uh, my cameraman made a mistake. Is there any way I can drive back up there and do an interview with Lou? And my, the sports information director goes, let me, let me check and I'll, I'll call you back. So he calls me back and he said, Lou said, if you can get up here within an hour, He'd, he'll talk to you again. So we get in the car, we drive 45 minutes, run into uh, the arena, and I said, hey, Lou, I am really sorry, and I appreciate the time. He goes, Grant, for you, no problem. I'm happy to help you. Uh, you know, what can I do? And we did the interview, and I'm thinking, gosh, this guy's a big-time, big-time college basketball coach that is going out of his way to accommodate me. And I was just like, man, you know, you don't forget things like that. You know, I don't forget covering the Chicago Bears in that era, too, at Soldier Field. And I was there when the Bears won their Super Bowl, and they had their bubble for a week at Champaign. When I mean the bubble, Champaign had a bubble over the practice field, and the Bears needed a place to practice inside before they went to the Super Bowl. And they used the facilities in Champaign. But I, throughout the year, I'd been at Soldier Field, and, you know, Jim McMahon, you know, I'll be very honest. Uh, he he was a real jerk to people. You know, he really was. Uh, he was callous. Uh, he was abrasive. And that was Jim McMahon. But then later in life, after Jim retired, I used to interview him all the time at the Celebrity Golf Tournament every year. And we actually got to a point where I said, hey, Jim, Grant Napier goes, oh, yeah, sure. I remember you. How are you? And got talking and dealt with his dementia. You know, Jim had an early onset uh, or uh, early what stages of dementia, I guess is the word I'm looking for here. It's a good thing I don't have to talk for a living, but learned more about Jim, his headaches, what he went through, talked about that era of time with the Bears. And so, you know, here's a guy that when he played, it's a lot different than when he stopped playing. And I've always talked about Aaron Rodgers, and I've been very honest about Aaron Rodgers. And the first time that I met Aaron Rodgers was at the Celebrity Golf Tournament in Tahoe. You know, uh, two months prior, he'd come on my radio show in Sacramento when I was working with Mike Lamb, but I was off that day. And my producer still scheduled Aaron, who had not yet stepped on a NFL field. It was right after he played at Cal. And he goes on the radio and says, where's Grant? And they go, Grant's off today. And he goes, wow, that's the only reason why I came on the show. Grant's an idol of mine. And I just go, Come on. But, you know, he grew up in Chico. He was a big Kings fan. Loved Lottie. Loved Peja. Loved Webb. Loved Bibby. Loved, you know, loved all those teams and loved me as an announcer. Said, man, I love you. And so anyway, Mike said, don't worry. You'll meet him up in Lake Tahoe at the Celebrity Golf Tournament. And I met Aaron and we exchanged numbers and Aaron was great. Aaron was so good to me that when he went to the Super Bowl, he came on my show, okay, the week before the Super Bowl. And when the Packers won the Super Bowl and the MVP, Aaron Rodgers, I had him on my radio show the next day. 
Think about that. In Sacramento, California, I had the MVP of the Super Bowl on my show the day after. We'll never, ever forget how generous Aaron Rodgers was and how kind he was to me. He would text me a lot after games if I reached out and said, hey, man, you were great today. And he'd be on the airplane. He goes, hey, we're just getting ready to take off. Thanks, buddy. Uh, We'll catch up with you later. He would always get back to me. And then he became a little bit more reclusive. He became a little bit more distant. Uh, Up at Lake Tahoe, he didn't stay at Harris anymore. And he wasn't at the high limit room with all the fellas and their wives and their friends. And Aaron became somebody that you would see all the time. And then he became very reclusive. He would rent a house and you wouldn't see Aaron. Then he would do, you know, fewer and fewer interviews and didn't want to do the interviews. And he really changed. And I, I say this, and if Aaron were sitting right next to me now, I would tell him the same thing. I like the old Aaron Rodgers better. All right. And I've been around a lot of athletes that have gone from being nobody to being real famous. And, you know, the majority of them have not changed. They're the same individual. They've achieved greatness in their sport, but it did not change them. And it's changed Aaron, and I I feel bad that it has. You know, a guy like Yogi Stewart from Sacramento, high school in Sacramento, Cal, and ends up playing for a brief period of time in the NBA, including Sacramento. And when Yogi made it and, you know, got his first big NBA contract, it didn't change who he was. And to this day, it has not changed who he is. And so, you know, I've been, not to put Yogi Stewart in the same category as Aaron Rodgers, but the point is some people really change and then others, they're the same individual. I've been so blessed to get to know so many of those athletes up at Lake Tahoe. Marshall Falk always was on with me. Radio show, Jim Rome show. I'd go up to Tahoe. Hey, Marshall, how you doing? Grant, man, how are you? How's it going? And we, he, he, Marshall's a huge basketball fan, and we talk about the NBA. You know, great guy, right? I talk about Will Clark, Brian Urlacher, who I met at the Celebrity Golf Tournament. Great guy, all right? Great guy. Robbie Gold, phenomenal, you know, phenomenal. Robbie gave me his number. I said, hey, if you need me, you call me. I'll come on your show. Uh, I've had Robbie on my podcast. I mean, I think about all these people that were on my podcast, that I met up at Lake Tahoe, Brian Urlacher, right? Marshall Falk. Well, Marshall hasn't been on my podcast, but he was on my radio show all the time. Interviewing Goose Gossage at Lake Tahoe, reminiscing about the 77 and 78 World Series and being on the mound for two and two-thirds in the one-game playoff against the Red Sox where Bucky Dent hit the three-run homer and Goose got Carl Yastrzemski to pop up to Greg Nettles, and he talks about that whole story, talking about how, hey, we hated them, and they hated us. We didn't like them, we weren't talking to them, and they weren't talking to us. Talking about that great rivalry, David Wells, Perfect Games, Yankee history, talking to him about all of that. Talking to George Brett up at Lake Tahoe. I mean, I could not believe that I was interviewing George Brett on the driving range at Lake Tahoe, because he's one of the players that I probably admired more than any other player that's been on a team not the New York Yankees. I love George Brett. I love the way he played the game. And to have George on the radio and talk about his memories of going against the Yankees in those series and everything, the, the, the pine tar at bat and the pine tar game, and to have him relive that was incredible. You know, being I'm so thankful that I had a chance to meet Emmett Smith and interview him, which is one of the funniest interviews that I've ever had as it pertained to my wife, uh, Star, who was sitting a couple of feet behind me. It was just, it was a classic. 
And I'm so thankful that I had a friend in Dallas who invited me to his 70th birthday party to have me sit at a table with Roger Staubach and his wife. And I, I couldn't believe it at first. And again, this was probably five years ago, six years ago. So I've met tons of people. But it was a thrill for me to be sitting at a table with Roger Staubach and talking to him and reminiscing with him and even saying, hey, Roger, if you don't want to go there, I'm fine. I don't want to. And he goes, no, no. And I'll never forget. And I said, well, you know, you're not going to like me. I'm from New York. I'm a diehard Giants fan. And he laughed. And I said, if you don't mind, I go, how did you feel about playing at Yankee Stadium? And he said, I look forward to it more than any game every year. It was my favorite place to play. He goes, I always wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. And he said, I played baseball at the Naval Academy. And I, I didn't know he played baseball at the Naval Academy. He said, I didn't start playing football until high school. And we talked about that. Uh, he talked about his longest touchdown ever was at Yankee Stadium to Bob Hayes. I said, I was at the game, believe it or not. Don't rub it in. And we laughed. Uh, but at the end of the night, after we talked about a lot of things, and the nice thing about Roger, it wasn't just me talking to him. He wanted to know about my background. He wanted to know about where I went to college. He wanted to know about me doing the Kings games and talking to me about the NBA. And at the end of the night, he said, Grant, I would love to have you as my guest in my suite. If you're ever in Dallas and you want to go to the game, you let me know. It would be a delight to have you and your wife join me for a game. And I was just like, wow. You know, like that, that's a wow moment. A guy that, you know, even though they killed the Giants every time they played him, killed him. It was like men against boys. But Roger Staubach, Bob Hayes, the fastest man in the world. I remember as a kid getting ready to go to the Giants-Cowboys game, and I was like, wow, I'm going to be able to watch the man that is the fastest person in the world. Like that resonated with me. I was like, man, how damn Lucky am I. So thankful that I had a chance to see Roger Staubach play in person at Yankee Stadium. I saw Jim Brown play in person at Yankee Stadium. I watched Johnny Unitas play in person. Joe Namath, right? Um, the, the, I can go on and on and on. I, I'm blessed that I was able to experience so many greats, so many Hall of Famers. Larry Wilson, who was to this day... You know, we can talk about Jack Tatum and George Atkinson on that Raiders secondary, but Larry Wilson was an assassin from his safety position. Larry Wilson of the St. Louis Cardinals, let me tell you something. If you were a receiver or a running back on the Giants, you always had to know where Larry Wilson was. He was tough as nails. And when I met Larry Wilson... Early in my career, in the mid-80s, at Mattoon, Illinois, all right, on the campus of Eastern Illinois, where Tony Roma went to college, where Sean Payton went to college, and where the St. Louis Cardinals had training camp. And I went to the Cardinals training camp, and I had to check in uh, in the media center, and Larry Wilson was there, the general manager of the Cardinals at the time. And Larry comes over and introduces himself to me. And I said, Larry, I said, this is a real big thrill for me. And he said, how's that? I said, you used to be one of my favorite players when I used to go to games every Sunday at Yankee Stadium that did not play for the Giants. I love the way you played, and I remember you to this day. 
And he was just blown away. And we started talking about, you know, the Cardinals back then. And we started talking about playing the Giants and Yankee Stadium. And he said at the uh, end of the conversation before one of the field, he goes, Grant, we are so delighted to have you here. If you need anything at all, you let me know. All right. We're happy to have you here. Make sure you get lunch after the morning practice. Make sure that, you know, you get what you need and whatever you need, you let me know. Jim Hannafin was the head coach and Love talking to Jim Hannafin. Like, Jim Hannafin to me was the National Football League. You know, when you talk about coaches, when you talk about lifers, Jim Hannafin, God, he was great. Neil Lomax was the quarterback. Roy Green, the wide receiver. Jets dream. And uh, I got to know Neil and Roy on a personal level years later at the Celebrity Golf Tournament in Lake Tahoe. And I love talking with Neil Lomax. Neil was, again, if I had to make a top five nicest guys that I've ever met, it would be hard not to put Neil Lomax on the list. Neil is A-plus across the board. (laughs) I used to love when I talked to Neil Lomax about coming up to the line of scrimmage against the Giants when Lawrence Taylor was there and he was talking about all the times that Lawrence sacked him and how like, you know, you would be, you would have trouble sleeping the night before knowing that you were going against Lawrence Taylor and he told me, he goes, because, you know, it really didn't matter what the scheme was. We knew that we were not capable of blocking him and that meant a long day for me but uh, I I really enjoyed that. So, you know, again, I'm so thankful for my experiences of meeting so many great, and those are only a few of them. You know, I could spend hours and hours and hours reminiscing and talking about some of the fabulous, fabulous players, people, coaches that I've met. Many, many more. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast, but next coming up is Grant's Rant. It's time for Grant's Rant. And today's rant is brought to you by Bennett's Three Restaurants in Sacramento, Sacramento, Roseville, and now at the Blue Oaks Town Center in Rockland. Go to Bennett'sRestaurants.com. Check out the menu and so much more. You'll love it. Bennett's Restaurants. Again, make a reservation at Bennett'sRestaurants.com. Do not tell me that the PGA Tour is not in trouble. They are in big-time trouble. They just lost John Rahm to the Live Golf Tour. The guy who a year ago said it wasn't for him, and he went on and on and said how, you know, $300 million wouldn't change his life one bit. Well, guess what John Rahm did? He took the money. He's gone. Joining the Live Golf Tour. And if you don't think that Saudi Arabia is having a major impact on sports in this country, then you're living on a foreign planet and you're naive, okay? I believe this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're seeing it with soccer. We're seeing it with golf. And you must ask yourself, what's next? What happens if they want to start a tennis tour? Think about that for a minute, right? What's going to happen? Yes, you understand. I understand. But John Rahm leaving the PGA Tour is as bad as it gets. Not quite would be like Tiger leaving the tour in his prime, but it's pretty damn close. That is bad news for the PGA Golf Tour. Bad news. Now, yes, we'll still see Rahm in the majors, but you're not going to see him the way you have been seeing him unless you watch the Live Golf Tour. And that's my rant for today. That is my podcast for today. Hope you have a great weekend. And thank you so much for joining us right here if you don't like that. So long, everybody.